as you work your way through the Heidelberg Catechism and the afternoon services, you've reached Lord's Day 40, page 555 of the Book of Praise. And this regards the sixth commandment, you shall not kill. So let's read Lord's Day 40. What does God require in the sixth commandment? I am not to dishonor, hate, injure, or kill my neighbor by thoughts, words, or gestures, and much less by deeds, whether personally or through another. Rather, I am to put away all desire of revenge. Moreover, I am not to harm or recklessly endanger myself. Therefore, also, the government bears the sword to prevent murder. But does this commandment speak only of killing? By forbidding murder, God teaches us that he hates the root of murder, such as envy, hatred, anger, and desire of revenge, and that he regards all these as murder. Is it enough, then, that we do not kill our neighbor in any such way? No. When God condemns envy, hatred, and anger, he commands us to love our neighbor as ourselves, to show patience, peace, gentleness, mercy, and friendliness toward him, to protect him from harm as much as we can, and to do good even to our enemies. Brothers and sisters, in our Lord Jesus Christ, I observed this morning that your church lawn is full of signs connected to the Sixth Commandment, protect unborn human rights, and these come from the Life Tour, they were being dispensed with it, and that's just completed across Canada to try to draw attention to this commandment, and it's how it has a bearing on our unborn children and the preservation of their lives. And the Life Tour, if you had the opportunity to attend it, had a wonderful way of teaching that every child is a complete, unique, living human being. And everyone that was there repeated it to get it stuck in our minds, and it worked. Now, I mentioned this morning that we could sort of have our optimism buoyed up by positive statistics. And I said I wouldn't mention one, but I'll mention one this afternoon. In the state of Texas, they used to have 40 clinics that could administer abortions legally. And they changed the law in such a way that that was curtailed and reduced to 17 clinics because they required that every clinic had to have full um, hospital services or or, uh, emergency help available and and meet standards that were hard for many of them to meet. Then they ramped up the standards higher, and they're now down to only seven functioning abortion clinics. That's progress. But what we said this morning was that mentioning statistics like that will buoy us up, and we're happy, and we should rejoice that there's some curtailing of abortion, but we have to find our real foundation and our strength in the Word of God. 
in what the Lord says, in things that may be unseen, we confess in the Nicene Creed that he's the maker of all things, maker of heaven and earth and of all things, visible and invisible, invisible including all the angels that God made. Um, And there's so much of our faith that is not by sight, it's by faith. And so we need to root our confidence and strength in the Word of God and in this commandment and, and what this commandment uh, entails and what foundation lies under it that you shall not kill. And so this afternoon, we want to see that, we want to focus on God's Word, see what this commandment means, and then focus particularly on what Psalm 139 teaches about children in their mother's wombs. You knit me together in my mother's womb. As we know it, it's stated a little differently in the New King James Version. We'll talk about that in a moment. But Psalm 139 here fits perfectly with the sixth commandment, you shall not kill. We may not kill the life God gives. It's his to govern, to give, and to take. And by it, he teaches us something wonderful about, not just us, but about himself. So I may bring you God's word from this commandment, all life is the gift of God and must be protected and promoted. All life is the gift of God and must be protected, has to be upheld, promoted, cared for. So we have this commandment, you shall not kill, and other translations say you shall not murder. And the Hebrew behind it has the sense of you shall not kill unlawfully. And that already somewhat assumes then there may be a lawful kind of killing. And if we say you shall not murder, that works very well with respect to humans, but with respect to animals, there could also be uh, unlawful killing. And so maybe the translation you shall not kill, a bit more general, uh, represents the meaning of the commandment better in as much as the Lord under this commandment would also teach his people that a righteous man cares for his animals and such things as that. So this commandment is to not kill humans, but also not to destroy other life for no reason, like endangered animals or killing a shark just for its fins or an elephant for its tusks. Surely the Lord would not call that good stewardship of his creation. And we, but we may raise animals for meat because God permitted this to Noah in Genesis 6, verses 2 and 3, where he said, just as I gave you all the green plants, now I also give you the animals for food. And when God tells Noah that he has dominion over all those things, and when God said that already to Adam and Eve, that we would rule in his image over all these things, that means we're also accountable And the sixth commandment maintains that accountability, you shall not kill, and God will punish those who kill unlawfully. And why are we not to murder fellow human beings? Well, in the same, to the same person, when the Lord spoke to Noah, he also, after the flood in Genesis 9, spoke about not taking the lives of fellow human beings. So, Genesis 9 verse 6, the Lord says, From the hand of every man's brother I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. There's God again holding us accountable because he made other human beings in his image. He doesn't allow us to just 
kill them when they get in our way. And in fact, if someone does so, the Lord here says that other people shall put him to death. By man shall his blood be shed. And this all in the context of um, requiring the life of a man from whoever kills a man. So clearly it's about capital punishment, which is required for, per- for particular cases, or is permitted for particular cases, and on the basis of Scripture even is just, is required. And the Scriptures teach that this is not to be about personal revenge, but justice administered by lawful judges. And so the Lord requires that there be witnesses in the plural of the crime. And that might mean sometimes that it's hard to, to uh, convict someone. But the Lord wants reliable witnesses, plural, of the crime. And the whole process should be carefully regulated, and it really ought to have an appeals process as well. But in the end, murderers should be killed. The sixth commandment says you shall not kill, but that shouldn't be misinterpreted to mean that if someone does kill, oh well, there's nothing we can do, or capital punishment is thereby prohibited. That's how the United Church for some time interpreted the verse, as if capital punishment was against the sixth commandment, when the very place where God commands capital punishment is when you break that commandment. So that's a just retribution. A murderer forfeits his own right to live. That's the basic meaning of the commandment, not to kill unlawfully. But there's a deeper meaning of the commandment that we also confess in the Heidelberg Catechism. And this deeper meaning is already rooted in the Old Testament very clearly. If we go to Leviticus chapter 19, then the Lord is giving a number of laws to his people. And Leviticus 19, the verses 17 and 18 He says, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So he already there sets forth the way of love as opposed to the way of hatred, which would lead to murder. And our Lord Jesus Christ then in Matthew chapter 5 takes the same teaching and repeats it for God's people and makes it more clear if it wasn't already clear, where he says in Matthew 5, verse 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment, but I say that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment, and whoever says to his brother, Raka, that's like saying retard, don't say that to your brothers or sisters, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says you fool shall be in danger of the hellfire. These sayings of the Lord Jesus are directly related to the commandment not to kill. And he teaches us that the root of it begins in the hatred and anger of our hearts. Anger is the beginning of the desire to murder. And we should know this as Christian people, Christian children, uh, and it's, if we have any doubt, then we can always look in other places of Scripture. James chapter 1, verse 19 and 20. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness 
of God. And then he speaks about something similar in chapter 4 of James, 4 verse 1 to 3. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. So there's lots of anger. They're at war with each other. There's a murderous and covetous desires in their hearts. And it's, it's what leads to the murder. And where does this all... Um, what promotes all this anger and murder? Verse 4 of James 4. Adulterers and adulteresses. So men and women together, both full of this. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And when you're an enemy of God, you're much more likely going to have a lot of anger and frustration in your heart. When you're a friend of God, then you shouldn't be at war with other people. You see, so he directly relates the breaking of the sixth commandment, starting in our hearts, to worldliness, to living in the ways of the world which are not the ways of love. And so we in our Heidelberg Catechism say that this commandment is not just about murder, but by forbidding murder, God teaches us that he hates the root of murder, such as envy, hatred, anger, and desire of revenge, and that he regards all these as murder. So we all know that, and we all have to live up to this very high standard where the Lord doesn't just say, it's okay as long as you didn't actually knife someone or actually threaten them, but the Lord says, how did you regard your brother in your heart? Was it in the way of love? Was the motivation for your rebuke to him or to her out of love? Or was it out of anger and hatred? And so what are we to do? Question answer 107. Is it enough that we do not kill our neighbor in any such way? No, when God condemns envy, envy, hatred, and anger, he commands us to love our neighbor as ourselves and to show patience, peace, gentleness, mercy, and friendliness toward him. To protect him from harm as much as we can and to do good even to our enemies. We want to see this afternoon that what we're confessing here has its application also to our unborn neighbors. They too are neighbors who should be protected from harm as much as they can be. The Lord in the scriptures says that a day acceptable to him is a day when we do what it says in Isaiah 58 verses 6 and 7, loosing the cords of injustice and so on. Isaiah 58 verses 6 and 7. Is this not the fast that I have chosen to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke, is it not to share your bread with the hungry, and that you bring to your house the poor who are cast out, when you see the naked that you cover him, and not hide yourself from your own flesh? Those are verses so tied to the upholding and promoting of life. And this is easy to understand, that we have to protect and promote life and care for others who are under our care. It's easy to understand, let's say, that you as the man of the house are um, caring for your wife and your children, and they're about to be kidnapped. 
Now you as the man have the God-given duty to protect them and to defend them. You understand that. They're under your care. They depend on you. You're the stronger one. Um, Most of the time that would be the case physically. And you must lay down your life for their freedom. Now what about when the weak and the the, uh, vulnerable are unseen? What about when they're in the womb? The killing of the unborn is injustice and oppression of the worst kind. These are the weakest of all who have no voice and who are completely dependent on us and are murdered day after day. This is a heinous evil and a denial of our very humanity. If they are alive, if they're alive, we nurture them and we, we wake up in the middle of the night to take care of them. We deny ourselves all kinds of comforts in order to help them. If they're born early and premature, we have neonatal intensive care units and we spend lots of money to take care of them. We know that they're absolutely dependent on us from the beginning. If you compare that to animals, baby elephants, they can walk around as soon as they're born. And other young, like puppies, they might depend on their mother for six, eight weeks or something. Um, And they're still going to need some care after that. But what about human beings? Totally, totally dependent on their mother and father for at least five years. But really a lot longer than that yet too. And as we grow up, we get to that stage where we, we sense that we don't depend on them anymore and we start to assert our independence. And that, that can be done in a good way. But notice the difference of how much children of human beings are dependent on their parents. And we're made to be dependent, to live that early part of our lives receiving love, learning about what it's like to have a loving Heavenly Father, ultimately through the love of Father and Mother on earth. We're not made to kill our young. And, well, what animals domesticated or wild animals would systematically kill their young. You can find a few where the mother protects the child, or the, the, the young animal, from, the, from her mate, perhaps. Or you can see a, a mother pig, a sow, will sit on her young and crush them and be too lazy to get up sometimes. But what animals would knowingly and systematically kill their young? Most of them do just the opposite. Don't ever go camping up north in Ontario and get between a mother bear and her cubs. You might die for it. Even experienced outdoorsmen have been killed in this way when they didn't realize where they were walking. So how is it then that the more advanced human beings would kill their own? 100,000 per year in Canada right now, although the statistics are sealed up. And, well, millions, probably 60 million in the USA since Roe versus Wade. This is the greatest misuse of our intelligence and of the love God gave us. It's pure selfishness, it's utter idolatry, and it happens in places and countries where people become well-off and rich and just want to live for their pleasures and not care for their young. So let's go back to God's Word, especially Psalm 139. Psalm 139. 
starts out talking about God knowing absolutely everything because God is absolutely everywhere. So if he's everywhere, he can take in what happens everywhere. But it goes beyond that. It's not just that God is finding it out at the same time that you're finding it out because all the days written for me were in your book before one of them came to be. God is finding it out as you're finding it out, but what he's finding out is that the plan he made is being worked out. So Psalm 139 has this theme of the greatness of the knowledge and the presence of God, and then verses 11 and 12 continue that theme of God knowing everything and seeing everywhere. If I say, surely the darkness will fall on me, and even the night uh, shall be light, sorry, the darkness will fall on me, it's as if, if it's totally pitch black dark if you ever go caving. You turn off the lights in there, you can see absolutely nothing. Even if you put your finger a centimeter in front of your eye, you will not see it. So why not do that and then God can't see us? Well, no. Even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide me from you. The night shines as the day and darkness and light doesn't make any difference to God. He can see just as well at night as in the day. And you can't, but God can. And so, then, verse 13 starts with this word, for. And the word for is always explaining something. It's, it's giving grounds and further explanations. And in this case, verse 13, for you formed my inward parts and knit me together in my mother's womb. The word for is going to... is saying here's some more evidence of how God knows everything and is everywhere, even in the place that you have never ever looked inside, in your mother's womb. It's completely dark there, especially to the ancients who didn't have ultrasound, and God can see in there. How do they know he can see? Because look what comes from the mother, a fully born child, fully formed baby. So God was at work in the mother's womb, says the psalmist. And this makes the psalmist even more convinced and should make us even more convinced of God's wisdom, his power, his knowledge, and his love. That's the way the psalm is, is working. That's how it brings in this whole part about you form me in my mother's womb. It's to say how marvelous are the works of God and even though we can't see, he's in charge of all those things. It's really remarkable Speaking of ultrasound, how um, ultrasound is used to help mothers who are thinking of an abortion consider what they're actually considering. Free ultrasound will help them see that that is a baby. It's not the blob of tissue that so many people told them it was. It's actually a baby. And then they often change their minds and they're helped. And that should make people marvel it should make people marvel but for someone who's hardened against the preservation of life and doing everything to make abortion available for others even the ultrasound is no longer creating in them the sense of astonishment or awe at the work of God because they are pushing that aside and hardening their hearts against it so that they can continue in what they're doing. And they rationalize it for themselves on the views of women's rights and so on, but they um, just do not extend to the child 
the rights of a human being, even though it is a complete, a unique, living human being. It's going to become one uh, entirely, and it already has everything it needs to be a human being. It just needs to be sheltered along and, and developed. And so people want the right to break God's law regarding sexuality as much as they want and not have to deal with the consequences. And some of the um, philosophies behind this, if it's a feminist philosophy, a fem- uh, part of the philosophy is you are your body and you, um, you are totally in charge of it. And nobody can, can tell you anything. You are autonomous. Or another way that it's um, backed up is you create yourself by your choices. You are making yourself as you go. That's a postmodern approach. And so no one governs you. No one commands you. And truth is whoever has the power has the truth. You make the truth as you go, and you have power over this child. There are no consequences. It's like David who first committed adultery and then committed murder to try to cover it up. People who undergo abortions are doing the very same thing. And that's why even in the case of um, rape, as as horrible and sad as that is, you never ever take one uh, error, one sin, and try and cover it up with a second one. That's why that's not a justification for abortion. Well, what does verse 13 say? For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. There's a little change here from the King James to the New King James. The King James said, For you possessed my inward parts. But formed is much more correct. The idea is that God created the inmost being. He formed my my soul, the seat of my feelings and emotions, the inmostness, the essence of me, my inmost being. The verb for you form my inward parts is the same one used in Proverbs 8, verse 22. The Lord brought me forth or created me or formed me, and that's wisdom speaking, as the first of his works. And it it does have the shade of meaning that one who created now owns or possesses what he created. But the main meaning is you formed my inward parts. God did that work. And David confesses this as a covenant child, but this is true of every person that God is the creator of of what's in the womb, starting with the seed of their emotions and their feelings, their soul. It's there, and it belongs to God. And do not get between God and his little ones, for he will be much worse than a mother bear robbed of her cubs. And then the second part of verse 13, you covered me in my mother's womb. Here we have the New King James and the King James following a certain tradition where others, and you might know the children's song, you knit me together in my mother's womb. And instead of covered, it's more correct to have it as you knit me together. And here the parallel is again from Proverbs 8, not verse 22, but verse 23. I, wisdom, was fashioned or knit together from eternity. Like all the pieces of knowledge are fitted together in the perfect way, and there you have wisdom. Just as your grandmother would stitch row upon row, mix the colors and so on, and all you're seeing is these rows of string going to her knitting needles, and you can't see the whole thing, but in the end, there's a very pleasing pattern. Just so God does in your mother's womb. He knit you together to make a whole person. 
God directs the fertilization, the implantation, the cell production, and so on, and he makes a beautiful human child in the womb. And God's not just doing the parts that we don't understand yet. He's covering the whole thing. However much understanding he gives us of it, his hand is in it all. And what is the right response to this amazing work of God? Well, Psalm 139 gives us the response. Verse 14, I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. And then the psalmist repeats what he had said before. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. That is a poetic reference to the womb, the lowest parts of the earth. Poetic reference because, again, it's an unseen place. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they all were written, the days fashioned for me when as yet there were none of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. That's the right response. The right response is this prayer, expression to God, praising God, speaking back to God what he has taught us about what he's doing when he forms a child. And so the whole thing, this whole psalm is spoken before the face of the Almighty and the all-knowing God, just confessing what he's done. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts and his ways are higher than our ways. And that doesn't just mean in Isaiah 55, which I just quoted, not, not just that God is not sinful like us, but that even in a perfect world, he would still be the author of life, he would still be the upholder of life, and we would still be amazed at the intricacy and the beauty of life. The Lord is so wonderful. And so Psalm 139, verse 17, How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God! How great is the sum of them! The whole world, with all its life, is the product of the thought and the voice of God. And that's why it reflects God, and it reminds us of Him. How precious are your thoughts? Meaning, how valuable, how cherished, a cherished possession of our own, to know something of the thoughts of God in the contemplation of a child that's conceived and formed in its mother's womb away from our prying eyes. It's a beautiful thing. Don't take it for granted. Don't think it's just everyday humdrum or cheap. This is amazing. We're made in the image of God. And so if anything should draw people to think of God from the perspective of of the whole creation around us in general revelation, if anything should draw people to think of God... It's the conception, forming, and birth of a child. So, if people reject God, what do you think they might want to do with those little children in the womb? Murder them. And they don't need to be reminded of the amazing thoughts of God. And so if we're really going to make ourselves one with God, if we're really going to see God's creating power and God's works in the lives of our fellow human beings, both those in the womb and those outside, even the wicked ones, who are nevertheless still in God's image, if we're really going to see things that way, then Psalm 139, verse 19 to 24, is appropriate. If only you would slay the wicked, O God, depart from me, do I not hate those who hate you, and so on. And so in the end, finally, search me, O God, and know my heart, and 
see if there's any wicked way in me. We ask God to cause our thoughts to follow after his, our hearts to be molded after the model of his. And we acknowledge that the God who forms babies in their mother's wombs also knows our hearts, which are hidden from the sight of others. You see how that theme carries through in the psalm? You can't hide from God. Even a child formed in its mother's womb is proof that God sees in the darkness, and so it ends with, look in my heart, God. Look in my heart, because that's the right conclusion when I realize that you see absolutely everything. And so in all life, we ask that we fulfill our God-given purpose of praising him for making us so wonderfully and redeeming us so graciously. So let us finally love Christ with an undying love, for he laid down his life for us. He submitted to the greatest human injustice, for he did not even have original sin. We killed our own Messiah, but in this way, God brings us salvation. So if the thoughts of God are precious and wonderful and treasured by us in the conception and birth of a child, how much more in the conception and the birth of Jesus Christ and in his death and resurrection. If ever God's ways were higher than ours and his thoughts higher than ours, that's where it really comes to be the case. And if there ever were any thoughts of God that we should treasure and hold as our treasured possession, it's his, not just thoughts, but actions that followed from his thoughts of redeeming us in Christ. And so the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of man, and the humility of the cross confounds the humanistic attitude of those who would try to create themselves and define their own morality. God turns right side up this upside down world, and he does it at the in the blazing glory of the cross of Jesus Christ and in the resurrection of the condemned and righteous man, Jesus. Those are God's thoughts of redemption and grace. And it's in light of those that this commandment comes back to us as something that is a beautiful commandment and something that encourages us to uphold and promote life because it is God's gift. This commandment commands us to reach out to those who are weak and offer them protection. And that's what we can try to do for our unborn neighbors and help those who are in power to see things God's way. And may the way of life everlasting be the real hope for this selfish world. Amen.